1: Welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the 2019 election specials. I'm Danielle Ward and this is one of two podcasts we're putting out about the general election on Thursday the 12th of December. I won't think it will make much difference, but at least you can't say we didn't warn you. Joining me to answer questions about what it's like inside an election is former Labour Party advisor Tom Hamilton. Hello, Tom. Hello. And asking questions that reveal that while they've been retweeting articles about the election, they definitely haven't been clicking on the links. It's Nat Tapley and Suze Kempner. Hello. Hello. And obviously, no-one listens to the end of podcasts, so can we get any plugs out of the way now?
2: Suze. Uh, yeah, I do a podcast called Mystery on the Rocks with comedians, and we solve unsolved real-life mysteries and drink cocktails, and I write a song at the end of it, Mystery on the Rocks see you soon
3: <laughs> <Nah>. <laughs> I also do a podcast it's called Date Fight and it's me and Jake Yaps choosing two events that have happened in history on every day of the year and fighting to see which of them is best but Suza sounds like more fun and Tom what, <laughs> what, what, what's your podcast called? Uh, my podcast is do you actually just... have a podcast? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) I was trying to come up with something.
1: I failed. You did that really well. I can see why you were a Labour Party. (laughs) advisor. It was a really good poker face. So my first question to you, and I think it's an important one, is who writes all the brilliant jokes that politicians come up with (laughs) during a campaign and then look really happy about?
3: Well, it really varies. So uh, often it's the politicians themselves. Really? Um, Yeah. Um, Often those are the worst ones, but not always. Mm. Sometimes it's political advisors, like, um, not not excluding me on occasion, although I'm not going to remember any jokes that I've I've written (laughs) for public consumption. Um, And then sometimes it comes, you know, there is a history of politicians sourcing jokes from actual professional comedians and sort of, people of their acquaintance and trying to get them to come up with jokes you also get quite a lot of unsolicited jokes i mean i used to work on prime minister's questions and we'd obviously be trying to get jokes um as part of as part of that we quite often get messages from journalists comedians of our acquaintance i mean i I work with aisha hazarika who was a uh, who is now a professional Mm. comedian was then a professional political advisor um so she would do some of the jokes but also her her comedian mates would um would write in with, with jokes. And to be honest, they're not always jokes that are going to work in that sort of context. That's not to say that the jokes that are used in that context work either. Very diplomatic. But, um, but yeah, the, the quality of political jokes is, is not brilliant.
1: It always makes my arsehole title. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's just always the thing that like, don't do... But the thing is, when when if it's a good joke, it would be, I think, you know what, if you did the best joke of an election campaign, you'd probably win
2: yeah <laughs> uh, i think you
3: would so hire us everybody. yeah
2: obama but, had it didn't he he had that thing. he can do stand up obama yeah and i think it helped him so much
1: yeah but then when <laughs> they go bad all oh, it makes me <laughs> it makes me want to throw yeah. up um so my first question uh, other than the joke question is is the number of leaflets that you have to push through the doors to an election greater or smaller than the number of tv shows
3: you have to go on <laughs> Where,
1: where's the coverage? Is it leaflets well, or is it TV I mean, shows?
3: Well, the, the, the literal answer is it is definitely greater because if you only put, like, ten leaflets through the doors in the entire election campaign, you probably wouldn't do well. But you don't really know. So you need to have a balance between trying to get as many leaflets through as many doors as possible and knock on as many doors as possible mm-hmm. and also just trying to get as much coverage for your for your leader as possible. And one of the problems that, um, that a lot of politicians have outside of election campaigns is that it's just hard to get on TV. So... If you're if you're the prime minister or the government, you can you can make a headline every day mm-hmm. just by announcing something because you're the government. And if you announce something, in theory, it'll happen, although it often doesn't. Um, if you're the opposition, it'd be ha- ha- quite hard sometimes to break into it. So when the election starts, there are broadcast balance rules that kick in. It's easier for at the moment for Labour to get more m- more attention. It's easier actually for the Lib Dems to get more attention. That's really important for them because it sort of reminds people that they exist and that there's a bit of a and that there's a, there's a contest and there's a choice about who who to vote for. But you still need a lot of leaflets dropping through letterboxes and even more importantly people just knocking on doors what people don't always realize about the door knocking stuff is it's not about knocking on as many doors as possible to sort of have an argument with voters and say you say you're going to vote conservative no let me tell you the five reasons why actually you should be voting labor and have it out on nationalization questions or whatever it might be so much of it is actually just data collection and you're just going there finding out how they're going to vote making sure that the people that you thought were going to vote labor are still voting Labour so that on the day you can go around and knock on their door again and tell them, you said you were going to vote Labour, please make sure you do. If you know that they're not going to vote Labour, then on the day you don't knock on the door at all and you hope that they've forgotten about it (laughs) Um, and they're not going to come out and vote for anyone else. So it's a a massive and really unbalanced sort of almost opinion poll that you're carrying out only among the people that you think are most likely to be your supporters because you're not wasting time going to whole areas that you don't think the Tories are in and that's why in 2015 one of the big sort of electoral dynamics in 2015 was that the the whole swathe of seats in the southwest of England that the Lib Dems held that the Tories took off the Lib Dems Um, and that was what gave them their majority Mm -hmm. and Labour internally just didn't really know very much about that because Mm -hmm. they just weren't really doing any work in those seats because they already knew that they weren't going to win them. So it just wasn't where their data was. Right. So they knew they knew how well they were doing up to a point in sort of Tory Labour marginals, but there was this whole swathe of the country that the Tories did brilliantly well in, where Labour just thought, well, the Lib Dems usually are quite good at hanging on, so they probably will. I'm oversimplifying and probably will offend my friends who work with me in, in, <laughs> no, in, in the campaign. Really he to the Labour Party. But, you but take that to an yeah. extreme and like take go to those areas where people who aren't going to vote for you are and sort of release a general anaesthetic on the morning of the (laughs) campaign. Uh, Yeah, you could do that and you'd be arrested. Um, But, yeah.
2: Suze, do you have a question? If propaganda can win an election, why don't the left just get much better at it and get loads of bots?
3: Well, I don't know very much about bots, but they're quite good at... I mean, the left and the right are both quite good at creating good propaganda that is sort of attractive to the audience that it's aimed at mm-hmm. the the difference is i think that it's probably easier for let's say politicians of the right to get their messages into media that are consumed more widely and seen more widely so in, in the newspapers whereas you know the left is a bit better perhaps at sort of below the line stuff online stuff and so on, which is a bit more niche, a bit more targeted and you know, in the end, you know, if you're getting five thousand retweets on Twitter, mm. that just isn't as good as getting the front page of the Daily Telegraph. Yeah. But I mean, broadcast is a bit different. The, the broadcasters are pretty careful to try and give exactly equal time to, to, to both parties. It's not always easy. If the Prime Minister refuses to do an interview that everyone else has said that they're gonna do, it can be quite difficult to find the half hour slot although they, they they did one with, with Andrew Marr instead. Yeah. Um but they will be more or less equal, and the question is whether they're doing it in a way that's favourable or unfavourable, and they will always try and do it in a way that's balanced, but mm. both parties will complain. And one of the things that both the parties, or all the parties, I guess, will do is sort of constantly pick up the phone to broadcasters and say, this item was not fair. Now, I remember sitting in one of the TV directors, and one of Ed Miliband advisors was, you know, we had a, a a phone hotline which we could pick up where after each question we could complain to the the, the studio manager that you know, David Cameron had a longer answer than Ed had had, and they needed to rectify that in the next question. And you sort of felt like you had to do that because if you didn't do that, they were probably doing it yeah. in, in, in in their green room, and therefore this sort oh my God, of it's like ridiculous. To... Oh, it was nuts! It was completely nuts, <laughs> and it doesn't help you win a debate.
1: Right. <laughs> Getting back to the the knocking on doors, are people? Are, is the general member of the public genuinely voting for the MP? Or are they voting for a party slash leader? And do they know who their MP is? Well it
3: really varies. So, you know, some people are really knowledgeable about their MP, some people know their MP really well, some people are next door neighbours to their MP and they you know, they know whether they return their football over the over the hedge mm-hmm. uh, when their kid kicks it over. But I think I think most people most of the time are really, you know, they think that they're voting for who the next prime minister is going to be, who the party of government is going to be. And that's why you know it really matters whether whether party leaders are liked or disliked. It matters more than whether an individual MP is liked or disliked. And there's quite a lot of examples of MPs who are wracked by scandal or MPs who sort of publicly come out to criticise their leader then end up getting re-elected with a landslide in an election where their leader's done quite well. That happened to quite a lot of... Labour MPs in Mm. in 2017. There's lots of complex reasons why that happened. But, you know, a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's biggest critics came back with massively increased majorities. And who knows why those people voted the way that they did. In some cases, it would have been because they liked their local MP. In some cases, it would have been because they... Maybe didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, but thought that Labour wasn't going to win anyway, and wanted to have a stronger Labour Party in Parliament as possible. And their MP was part of that. The problem is, you've got to, its really hard to disaggregate all of that. Yeah. And I mean, that's a story that Corbyn's critics and the Labour Party like to tell themselves about the success yeah. in 2017. Yeah. There are lots of other stories about why that might have happened, and I'd have to take a view in this podcast, except to say that, to be honest, probably there's a bit of everything going on, mm-hmm. and. What was was the question? MP or leader? A bit of both, but the the leader is definitely more important because in the end, say your local Tory candidate is a really nice person with a really impressive background before politics. You know that they are committed to lots of things that you care about, but I'm sort of guessing that you're not Tories, not least (laughs) because of what you said at the end of the last last (laughs) podcast, which you heard the end of. In the end, you're probably not going to vote for that person and it's not personal, it's just that you don't want the Tories to be in government at the end of the day and the, and what you think of Boris Johnson is just going to outweigh what you think of your local Tory candidate and there's nothing wrong with that, you've got to make your decision on mm. the reason that you do on the other hand, if your best mate is standing to be, I don't know, standing for the Greens or something mm. and they're not going to win but you just want to make sure they keep their deposit because they're your best <laughs> yeah. mate, you might do it mm. not least because there are so many votes in each constituency that your vote probably isn't going to count that much mm. anyway. It
1: sort of makes it Amazing that anybody can become an independent MP when it's yeah. the, the odds are so yeah. stacked against
3: them. I mean, the best way of becoming an independent MP is to get yourself elected for a party and then resign from it. Mm. And quite a lot of people have done that in this parliament, especially. It's really unusual. Other than that, I mean, I can think of two or three mm. um, in my lifetime. It was Martin Bell in '97. Yeah, there was. Who was campaigning for the reopening or the or not closing Kidderminster Hospital yeah. in 2001? Um. There's an independent US MP in um, in Northern Ireland, but I don't think there are any. I, I, I've probably missed someone really obvious, but I can't think of very many because it's really hard because it's not just that people know that if you're independent, you can't possibly be the government yeah. and you care about who the government is, What that's one of the reasons why you're voting. But also you haven't got the party machine around you. So most Labour and Tory candidates will have quite a lot of people helping them out. They've got all the broadcast behind them. You know, They've got people knocking on doors for them. And you know, they've got the, the weight of the reputation of their party behind them and loads of reasons why people would want to vote for them or vote against them, and then that will disappear. So a lot of the MPs the Tories and the Labour Party who left their parties earlier this year, joined Change UK, the mm. independent group, I can't remember what it's called now, I think they're <laughs> mostly just standing as independents. A lot of them are re-standing and they haven't got the infrastructure around them anymore. I would be absolutely astonished if any of them won as independents. There are one or two who are standing for the Lib Dems and they've got more of a chance, although yeah. we'll have to see how that goes. But it's just so much harder and it's not uncommon for politicians to sort of overvalue their own contribution to their victory and undervalue just th- the weight of the, of the machine that's behind th- there's them. There's
1: a lot of confidence, isn't there, in uh, some of those MPs yeah. standing yeah. as independents. Um, Nat, do you have a question?
3: Yes. What difference does campaigning in winter make? By which
0: I really mean, could a decent cold snap between now and the election really sort everything <laughs> out?
3: Well, I mean, a, a big cold snap would have a demographically unequal Mm-hmm. effect on mortality, which would... Um, <laughs> which we're
1: not advocating. Which we're not
3: advocating, but it would tend to kill off people at the older end of the age spectrum and there may be a political weighting effect there. So that would be good or bad news, depending on your perspective. Um, but bad news in absolute terms because people would die. We don't like that. <laughs> no, that's bad. The bigger impact... Of Just the cold and the wet in general is it's just you, you get a smaller window for your door knocking and campaigning. So if you think about, you know, on a on a weekday in summer, people sort of start going out on the doorsteps after work. So let's say sort of 6 p.m. Mm. onwards. And if it's May or June, you can go on till about 10 o'clock. at like, night. People don't necessarily thank you for it, but you can. It's not unsafe. It's not dark. People don't mind opening their doors. If it's already dark when you're starting, I think people are less likely to want to open their doors to campaigners. And it's also potentially harder to get campaigners. To I mean, I haven't seen any sort of data on this. I don't know mm. if the parties are finding this. But, you know, if you've got a small canvassing team, you're more likely to want to go down a little alleyway in a country town. Yeah. If it's, you know, eight o'clock at night in June mm. compared to mm. eight o'clock at night in the middle of November. And, you know, you can't blame anyone who doesn't really fancy it. But, yeah, I mean, do, does the weather impact on people's willingness to go out the door? Yeah, it does. And if that's important to elections, then it makes a difference.
1: Suze?
2: Yeah, um, why are the Lib Dems letting people who hate them run their social media?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't possibly say who the Lib Dems have got running their social media, but you're yeah. right that they are... <laughs> They are not. Well, the thing is, it's a question of whether it's sort of to your taste or not. It doesn't work for me. A lot of the Tory social media stuff doesn't work for me, but you can sort of see what they're trying to do. Mm. Some of the Labour social media stuff, to be perfectly honest, doesn't work for me either. You're trying to hit as many different people as possible. The Lib Dems have a particular line in slightly embarrassing sort of tweeness. No examples of which I can think of at the moment. But, like, yeah the tone of their of their social media is that they're trying to appeal to an in-crowd. That's mm. sort of, you know, you, you, they try and make you part of a cosy club and the problem is they're probably too cosy a club to start with. Mm-hmm. So if you're not already on the inside of that group, which is relatively low down in the polls, you just look at them and go, what a bunch of weirdos, <laughs> which you probably don't think in quite the same way about Labour or Tory messaging, yeah. which is a bit more, you know, you, you you look at their tweets and you generally know what they're trying to do, even if you don't like them. Yeah. Um, whereas the Lib Dems, it's just, it just feels smug without the entitlement for smugness. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? You, 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 If you're going to occupy the moral high ground, you've got to re- make make sure you're on it.
1: Oh, they, they, they really thought they were going to do all right as well. It breaks it's, your yeah, heart, doesn't sh- it? The hubris. They still <laughs> was... might.
3: They still might. Well... well I don't still, think they will, but yeah. I just, I'm just <laughs> saying, you know, the election hasn't happened yet. We've got to, we've got to keep That's our options. True. We might have no Tories that day.
0: That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.
1: Tom, can I ask you, <laughs> yeah. what has happened to Jacob Rees-Mogg? Yeah, where is he? Where's he gone?
3: <laughs> well, he's quite rightly been told by people who make decisions in Conservative H- HQ, who, whatever you think of the Tories, are sensible people who understand about campaigning, mm-hmm. that if the public see him it's a net vote loser for the Conservative Party. I mean, it's not just the Grenfell comments that he made three or four weeks ago, which were awful. Mm -hmm. It's also that just in, in more general terms, if you think, you know, he's got this sort of persona that is a weird caricature of a Tory politician that, to be fair to the Tories, most Tory politicians aren't really like. But if you're not already predisposed to think, well, hey, that's quite fun, which some people do think, but they're quite niche and they're all voting Conservative anyway. Yeah. If you're not in that camp, then you just think, who are these people? They're sort of Culturally alien people. Like I sort of remember when I was a student, which was... I went to Durham, which is a slightly strange place, and most people in Durham are pretty normal, actually, but there was always this weird little subculture of maybe literally four or five people in every academic year who used to go around dressed as if they were in Jeeves, <laughs> Jeeves and Worcester. It was really odd, mm. and I never really understood what it was about. And... You know, i met a few of them. Some were really, really nice, but I didn't know what, what what that was about. Those people don't tend to go into public life. Yeah. And yeah. if they, you know, if they do, they grow out of that and they don't dress like that anymore. And Jacob B. Smog is this one person who has he's managed to stay like that and has never sort of, he's never got out of the idea that... The Houses of Parliament, we actually make decisions about how the country should be run. Is basically a bit like a debating society at Oxbridge, where you can
1: lounge round,
3: you, la- you can lounge around, and and say what you like without consequence. I think that's that's the thing about him is he doesn't, you know, it, it's all for the creation of some sort of effect. Because it isn't even very interesting. There
1: was a while when it, he really felt like he was going to be like a, a flagship player in the sense yeah. that he was this weirdly charismatic creature that they'd parade around and then he's just been put in a box somewhere, it's, it's kind yeah, of fascinating I mean, it was,
3: it's a matter, like people it's know a who he is taste. I guess is
1: what I'm saying, mm. like my nan knows who Jacob Rees-Mogg is she doesn't know who most politicians are
3: yeah but she either loves him or she hates him. I don't know. I don't know your nan.
1: My nan, I'd say, come down on the side of. She she likes that Nigel Farage. Right. Oh, so, uh, Yeah. Yeah.
3: So yeah. he's not. He's just not going to have an impact on her vote. I mean, she's probably going to vote for them anyway. Yeah. Maybe. But like, you want to try and feel people, and this is, you know, insert your joke here. But you want to try and feel people who feel reasonably normal, reasonably as if they understand how people actually live their lives. Mm-hmm. Also, people who can speak in full sentences and answer questions properly and react to the way that conversations go and so on. And people who understand how their side's policy works. Now, that shouldn't be that big an ask for people who have made a professional decision that that's what they want to do for a living. Yeah. But it turns out to be not as easy as you might think. And there are some people, and Jacob Rees-Mogg is a prime example, I could name lots of others, but maybe I won't, who don't tick enough of those boxes.
1: Did you have to hide anybody from Labour campaigns?
3: <laughs> not that I can think of, actually. That's the sort of the, the, the tactful answer, but I think <laughs> it, pre- it is probably also a true one. It, it sort of feels like there's a tendency among political advisors, right, and the former political advisors and current ones to sort of up their their importance. So, And I don't want to do that, and it wouldn't have been my job to say to any particular politician, you're not allowed to... Go on telly yeah. ever again. Um, I mean, I, I'm also given given my record, which is that I worked for the Labour Party for about ten years and fought three general elections. We lost all of them. It's in my interest to say, oh, I was I, I didn't do anything important. <laughs> <boring. laughs> I, I didn't make any significant decisions in those campaigns. But to be fair, I didn't really.
1: So Ed Stone wasn't
3: that wasn't you. Yeah, Ed Stone wasn't my idea, and <laughs> I. <laughs> So that was, a,
1: was a baffling, baffling choice.
3: <laughs> so I went, I, 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 lead I, lead went, I went down to Hastings on, which is where that was unveiled on the day after it had happened or possibly the day the, the day that it became public, so it was done the day before and then it was in all the papers on the Sunday. It was immediately completely obvious that, um, <gasps> that, it, that it was not the best photo up of all time. Oh. And the reason I was there was that in the last week of the campaign, they basically tell all the HQ staff right. There's no point having an HQ anymore. Just get out to a marginal seat and knock on as many doors as you can. And I went to Hastings because a mate of mine was running there, and also it was one of the sort of the the seats that we thought we had a chance of winning. Mm. But every additional body on the ground could help. But I I met one of the people who had been in the photo mm-hmm. with Ed and Sarah, the the candidate. So the person who was sort of two or three steps along, and it was obvious to her as well that it had all gone quite oh. badly. But she said, well. At least it wasn't a real stone. Ooh. And the thing is, it was a, yeah, real, it was stone. a, it wasn't a real stone. It was an actual yeah. stone that someone had carved, okay. and from five feet away, Someone thought that it was made of foam rubber. Oh that's no! That's how. Oh my that, that's what a, god! That's what 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 I used to it was. Yeah. Oh. I always thought that David Cameron. I like the, the the idea of the Ed Stone was that if if we'd won, Ed would have installed it in the garden of Number Ten as sort of a a, a reminder to politicians oh. to keep their promises. Oh. And I always thought that David Cameron oh, should have so should have having won the election should just bought it and put it there anyway It's a <gasps> monument to yeah, political It humorous. looks like a grave. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I
1: mean. Oh. In
2: my head, it was really high, like the um, Stonehenge. And Spinal Tap was meant to be, but it sounds like it was really small. No, like the I, I think
3: it. Was, I mean, I never, I never saw it okay. in real life. I just <laughs> no one knows where it's you know, <laughs> gone.
1: I know,
2: <laughs> it's in Peter a giant Garden. warehouse.
3: It's like sort of Rage <laughs> of the Lost Ark. You know, the <laughs> massive warehouse with yeah. various artifacts from political history. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as I know, it was you know taller than me, very no, heavy.
2: Okay, it was a big mounted headset. on a truck,
1: right? Wow. Yeah. Oh, I don't know oh. if that's better or worse. Nat, do you have a question?
3: So many. <laughs> uh, when you are looking at campaign events, mm.
0: and you're planning campaign events, what are red flags that come up that you'd swerve that
3: campaign event? Like well, children or maybe not children, but depending on the... This is another another thing where I have to sort of stick my head up and say, literally not exactly my job to do that. But you want to avoid really obvious terrible things that are going to get in the photo like a massive stone carved with your promises <laughs> or um you know there's a, there's a famous photo of gordon brown in a school event where he's come to the history class and there's a display about the rise of the nazis on the wall behind him so everyone just prints a photo of yeah. gordon brown with a swastika next to his head which you know not the intended message yeah. and that's yeah. just you know someone should have gone in and noticed that that yeah. was a problem you know, th- th- there are so many examples of text that appears mm-hmm. on, in, a, yeah. in a sign a shop sign could be anything and the photographers are all looking for it yeah. um, I think there's a I can't remember even which rude word it is that appears over David Cameron's head because he just happened to be over a shop that just had those letters mm. above it. So you want to avoid he's, that. He's sort in front of thing. country at one point. But he's covering up the. Earth. It, <laughs> might be, it, it, it's, it that might be what I'm thinking of. So you know you want to avoid all all, all that sort of thing. Um, you want to avoid situations where, um, where you might get mobbed by people who don't like you you know yeah. you want you want to avoid so you you want to avoid having someone up to you and present you with a p45 yeah. you want to avoid losing your voice and you want to avoid the letters falling off the stage mm-hmm. uh, behind you so if all three of those things happen at once then you know it's probably gone down as a as a, as a failed event
1: <laughs> <laughs> suze do you have another question
2: uh yeah it gets talked about a lot that we need a new Tony Blair. If Jeremy Corbyn ran a nineteen ninety seven Blair style campaign, would everybody love it, or would they just go? This seems very trite and outdated now.
3: Well, they might the think it seemed trite and outdated. They'd also think that's not authentic to him, right. to the to the leader that the Labour Party's chosen. It doesn't fit the times that we're in. It's like yeah. this isn't to be critical of of either of them because no. actually Tony Blair's ninety seven campaign can be. Justified and vindicated in lots of ways, and the most important vindication Absolutely. is that won a massive majority yeah. and kicked the Tories out for quite a long time. Mm. That's just not open to, to to Jeremy Corbyn to do for a whole load of reasons. Blair ran a quite a quite cautious campaign in lots of ways. non policy, it was quite cautious, and you know, he had his pledge card with five things that he said that he would deliver if, he, if if Labour got a majority. And if you look at them now, they're all quite modest. Yeah. But on the other hand, they're all things that Labour really did achieve in the first term for all the other things that they might not have done or the things that they didn't go far enough on you might think or you know, whatever criticisms you have they really did do the key things that they said they were going to do in that 97 manifesto I think if Jeremy Corbyn ran on that sort of very cautious platform I think it would be quite difficult mm. for him and also it, it's his position that not only that the country has been run badly for the last decade but that the country needs really radical reform and it's very hard to say that while not having any policies That do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, Tony Blair had to reverse what Labour characterised as sort of 18 years of Tory underfunding of public services, which, you know, I'd argue is a a real thing that Labour really did have to deal with. He didn't have to contend with 10 years of austerity, which is a different, just qualitatively different thing. But also, that meant that he could say, for the first year or two, we're going to stick to Tory spending plans. And that wasn't disastrous. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think for Labour to do something similar this time, I think Would lose them a lot of support from people who think that you do need quite serious additional spending on public services and also this is quite a good economic case for quite serious infrastructure spending which to be fair the tories are also acknowledging so he just need he just has to do different things i think the big the big question mark about jeremy's program is that while tony Blair had this quite narrow five, five things on the pledge card the manifesto has lots of things in it that many people might like but there are so many of them Yeah. that A, it's quite difficult to work out what the key message is and B with the best will in the world if Labour wins, can it actually do this stuff? Mm. And that's not just, is it a good idea or not? It's physically, can it pass all the legislation it needs to pass? Has it got the time to just get all this stuff done? Yeah. And therefore, if it did win at the end of that term, would it be able to point back and say, we said we'd do all this stuff, we've done it, now re-elect us? And that might be quite, mm. quite hard for it to do. But that's a there's sort of tactical Gotcha. Questions.
1: Why don't the Tories know that they've been in power for ten years?
3: (laughs) What's that about? Well, I think Boris Johnson genuinely doesn't think that he has been.
1: And he thinks that
3: year zero is is about three months ago Mm -hmm. when he became Prime Minister, and that's quite a convenient thing. I mean, you basically have to... This is too oversimplified, but you've got to decide whether you want to run as the candidate of change or the candidate of... Continuity. Continuity, that's right, and... And the Tories are trying to do both at once, really, because they've got this new guy who, whatever you think of him, just hasn't been Prime Minister for very long, mm-hmm. and he will argue, you've got to give me a chance to do stuff because in the first two or three months in Parliament, I couldn't get anything done, and it wasn't my fault yeah. because I didn't have a majority. You might say... What
1: was your fault you, you, for a second? You, pro- you,
3: pro- you, you probably shouldn't have promised to do all that stuff that you knew you couldn't do because yeah. you didn't have a majority in the first place, but nevertheless... He wants to be given the chance to do the things that he wants to do. He wants to get Brexit done, which is a big new thing that no-one else has got done before because you know, it didn't occur to the Tories before before 2016 that that was a remotely sensible idea. Um, So they have got some change to run on, but then they're trying to defend the record as well. But you don't hear them doing that that much. I mean, if they're pushed, they'll defend austerity a bit, but that's not really where they want to be. But obviously Labour especially are really trying to hammer them on that 10-year that record yeah. and, you know, the the rise of homelessness, the underfunding of public services. I mean, they've got a lot of evidence to point to and the Tories' best strategy. I mean, they could say, yeah, you're right, but we're going to sort it out now. Or they could try and deny it and it's yeah. easier just to try and deny it.
1: We have time for one more question each.
3: What one policy would change the election, the face of this election? Honestly, I think it's it's too late for that. I think there's already been enough policies. So on the Tory side, the one policy that will change the face of the election has happened, which is get Brexit done, right? Mm -hmm. You can agree with it, you can disagree with it, but that's what the election is all about from their point of view. That is their strategic choice. I think... Even if it turns out they don't do as well as they wanted to in this election, I think that was probably still the right choice for them to make mm-hmm. about how they fought it. So far as Labour's concerned, goodness knows, given what they've been announcing in the last fortnight, they might well announce five more policies between now and polling day. But I can't think of anything that would actually substantially change the course of the campaign. The question is that as we record, it looks like the polls are narrowing, but the Tories appear to be still in in enough of a lead that they could get a majority. Mm -hmm. If the polls keep on narrowing, then they won't get a majority. I don't think that's going to be solved by an extra Labour policy or two. It's just going to be carrying on with the messages that they've got. You get to a point in a campaign, it's usually quite early on, where basically you've made all your big choices and the question is, can you A, execute your strategy properly and B, is anyone going to notice?
2: Um, In the spirit of the title of this podcast what advice would you give change uk now with just days to go so that they could win a
3: majority <laughs> <laughs> well stand, stand in more than about five seats would be would okay, be one that, but, okay, um, good. but but also if they did that they they definitely wouldn't win i mean i think the, the, the sort of the tragedy of change uk is that they are very easy to mock i think that they've <laughs> oh, yeah i have perhaps more sympathy for the idea than some people do i mean there are people in there who really were sort of bullied out of the labor party and i think you know, that is a a problem for the Labour Party that, that that happened but the timing turned out to be bad for a range mm. of reasons that they probably weren't in a position to, to to like if Change UK wanted to make a real impact the best way to do it would be not to have gone when they did and to have formed themselves and announced their existence probably about a fortnight ago from now right. and that would have completely changed the dynamic of the general election campaign but they didn't know that at the time
1: and yeah. <laughs> uh, my final question has hashtag me too killed off kissing babies <laughs> You don't see politicians kissing babies anymore.
2: Yeah. You,
3: you don't really. I don't know if it's a. I, I wonder why that is. I I think it's probably less of a Me Too thing than just a, a general unwillingness among the public to hand their babies over to a politician. I'm not sure. I, you get a lot more politicians with their own babies now. Yeah, that's what it is, isn't it? So you can just produce your own baby, and yeah. then, then <laughs> and then no one really objects. Just, yeah. You get you you know you got you know. Also now, if you kiss a random baby and you want to get the photo in the paper and stuff, you've probably got to sign lots of consent forms and things now to make sure that the parents give permission, so it's probably just easier to do it with your own baby. Yeah. I don't know, I've not really thought about this, as you can probably tell. But, it's not uh, an issue that you know, ever confronted me. Well,
1: no, I, I mean, worked, any worked stupid questions and <laughs> yeah. the kissing babies was the stupidest. Um, <laughs> that's what we've got time for, so thanks to my guests Nat Tapley and Suze Kempner and our expert Tom Hamilton. There is another episode to listen to which features a political editor answering questions about what it's like to cover the campaign, so do listen to that, and then for fuck's sake, don't vote